Gospel of John spends about half of the whole book talking about the last week of Jesus' life. Gospel of Mark spends about the last third. There's a lot of time uh, and attention to the details that come up in the passages, starting with the one that we will talk about today. Uh, the Lord has been good. We enter this time of year um, just reminded, and I know Christmas does it, and, and Resurrection Sunday, Easter has a way of doing it, but it has a way of refocusing us to the things that are of utmost importance. Don't forget about that this week as you go. There's a lot of things to get done. There's plotting and planning, and there's still all the normal life things that you're going to do all week. Take the time to remember and to refocus about the things that are of utmost importance. This week is about you and I not having to pay our sin debt off. When's the last time you had a debt just forgiven? Just forgiven. Somebody come along, somebody helped you out, somebody picked you up, somebody dusted you off, and they did something with no strings attached. Multiply that by infinity. And that is this week for you and I. It is to be so appraised and so glory-filled and so joy-filled. You and I should live this whole week on cloud nine. That God loves us that Jesus has lived this life, that even in this last week of his life, if you'll just read through the stories, you will see everything that you are going through in your own life or everything that you've ever been through, you will see it in the last seven days Jesus lives. You will see them all there. Betrayal, hurt, pain, hunger, frustration, like they're all there. His story is all there. The disciples, the misunderstandings, the, the scattering of those that are supposed to be close to him, like everything that life has to offer, Jesus experiences this in this last week. And so I beg you this week, especially with the Gospel of John, dive into that, get into this story, read here, and just finish the Gospel of John this week. See what it is that Jesus chooses to teach on the last five days that he'll be living, Sunday to Friday. What is it that he is going to choose to teach his disciples? Go all the way into the cross and what he utters from the cross. Go all the way there. The most important things that he would want to communicate. You and I talk about it uh, in, in the idea of a last will and testament. There's things written there. We know how important the last couple minutes or the last couple days is of the life of a loved one. We know how important it is to be able to communicate in those last minutes. Listen, Jesus knew what was coming, and so he chose to articulate certain truths. This week, I would challenge you to get in them, to, to read them afresh, to enjoy them one more time, to be challenged by them, deeply challenged by them one more time. I would challenge you this week to be a part of that. It is Palm Sunday. Where have we been? Well, you and I, a couple weeks ago, saw the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to draw uh, a parallel that is kind of the opposite end of the coin. What was going on in the transfiguration? Jesus takes the disciples in or up on the mountain to pray with him in this intimate moment, in this time of obedience, in this time uh, that he is going to show his glory. And what happens when they look up? Jesus is transfigured. The glory that was there once before has been placed on him. And what happens to the disciples immediately? They fall down in what? Fear. They're scared. They're speechless. They're stuttering. They don't know what to do. Peter always has to say something. He sounds very familiar. Uh, he always has to say something, so he says something. He's just, he's nervous, and it's just going to happen. Transfiguration is them seeing a, a piece of who Jesus really is. What you and I are going to see this morning is something really amazing. We're going to see that same king ride into Jerusalem, humble on a donkey. 
This is an amazing thing to, to deal with. The last uh, Family Sunday we had, we talked about Jesus' love for children and the lessons they teach us, right? The Lord loves children. He calls us his children. That is how important that idea is to him. As adults, the joy experienced in the relationships with children should look like our relationship with God. Listen, friends. How many times have you actually had that idea in your mind that the joy you experience with your children, and especially your grandchildren, is the joy God experiences when he thinks about you and me? Is that an amazing thought? You know, Ray gives praise this morning for the idea that you turn shame into glory. God doesn't begrudgingly love you and I. You and I are the apple of his eye. He's chosen to call us children. Even more amazing than that, he's, he's chosen to call us the bride of Christ. And so you are adored. That is a fascinating truth because nobody knows how big of a mess up you are than you. Right? And you're like, man, if everybody could see, if everybody could experience, if everybody could, could know who I am and what I've done and what I've thought and all these other things, nobody would love me. Nobody would want to be around me. Friend, let me tell you, God knows all of those things, and nobody loves you better. Nobody loves you better. He calls us children. As adults, I want you and I to understand that joy of that child, that joy of that grandchild, God feels it too. God feels it too. He loves you and I. He adores us. He uses children, their innocence and their honesty, and we should too. You and I should expect things out of our children. Stop acting like they don't understand what is going on. From day one of youth ministry here, I walked in on day one, and I, it wasn't really the smartest thing to do, but I walked in and we flipped open the book of Ecclesiastes with teenagers. Why? Because I was tired of, of the idea that they were being sold short. Like they can't understand the concept of what a good life is or what it's like not to waste time or they can't start understanding the concept of money or their time is short, that there's a limited number of days. Like I cannot stand any of that stuff. Your children can handle way more than you and I give them on a daily basis. And if you don't think that's true, entertainment and culture knows it's true because what are they trying to do constantly? Feed them, groom them, disciple them in the ways of the world. You may not think your children can absorb big worldview issues, but Disney does. So does the school system. So do people that write rock music. Don't sell them short. God uses children. We should expect certain things from them as well, especially the teenagers that are here. Listen, you're living on the front lines of a mission field that your parents and your grandparents will never understand. You are accountable to that mission field. You are accountable to love and to look like Jesus. You're who he is choosing to reach them. You're that bridge. You're that gap between me, your pastor that loves you, and that child that may be the invitation that you bring here or that you may be the bridge or the gap between that child and your loving parents that could help them, love them, and train them. Do not be sold short. You are important and you are adored. He punishes those that harm or lead children astray. And the culture you and I live in right now, we need to grieve this idea because we are robbing our children of their innocence every day. We are placing upon them burdens they should not have to bear, and we do so repeatedly. 
So we need to, as parents and as a church, we need to get very protective about the things that we choose to allow into their life and the people we allow into their life. Some of us, that's changing schools. Some of us, that's something else. Some of us, that's a teacher. Some of us, that's a loved one that you have that shouldn't be in their life, and you know that. Like, we need to understand the Lord punishes those that harm children and lead them astray. Jesus said it would be better to be drowned than to make a child stumble. Now, that's terrifying. I don't know if you've ever almost drowned, but that's a scary feeling. And Jesus said you and I would be better off to have a millstone tied around our neck and be tossed into the sea than to make a little one stumble. Friends, you and I need to understand God is using children. He is giving us pictures through them. We need to love them. We need to cherish them. We need to honor them. We need to serve them. We need to not curse that blessing. And this church does a great job of that. Palm Sunday, here we go. I'm going to talk fast. You're going to listen fast. We did the same thing with the transfiguration. We read it in three different perspectives. It's the same story. I want to pull it apart just a little bit for you. Listen, there's a lot to go in here. Here's the main point that I want you to understand. Jesus is not a king like any other king, at least not in this passage. He is humble. And the main point of this morning that I want to drive home to you, I'm going to give it to you first. You and I have to worship Christ as he has revealed himself, not as we desire him to be. Does that make sense? A lot of people in our world right now claim to worship Jesus, but the Jesus that they talk about is not the Jesus in this book. The Pharisees and many of the Jews did the exact same thing. They worshipped a Jesus that they wanted to come. They would, they would um, like John the Baptist, remember Jesus said John the Baptist was a burning fire, and you, and you dealt with him, you, uh, you partook with him a little bit. Just for a little while until he kind of burned out on you. Like you enjoyed that light, you enjoyed that illumination for a little bit, and then you got tired of the intensity. Then you got tired of, of his call to repentance. Then you got tired of who he was, and you cast him aside. Jesus, in this passage we're going to see, a lot of these people are getting ready to do the exact same thing. You see, the Jewish nation would have crowned him immediately if he would have walked in and, and kicked Rome out of Jerusalem. He didn't even have to overthrow the Roman Empire if he would have just freed the Jewish nation. They would have said king. The Pharisees could have kept their place as the religious leaders. They could have stayed in the temple. They could have kept doing the things that they thought uh, God was requiring them to do. They could have kept earning their way to salvation. They could have kept doing all those things. Jesus could have been king. He could have been a military power. They saw it in spurts. But the problem was that wasn't the king Jesus was then. That was not the plan. What they needed released from was not the Roman Empire. What they needed released from was their own selfish, broken, dead selves. And the religious Pharisees couldn't deal with that. And the Jewish nation couldn't deal with being under Roman control. They couldn't deal with the idea that the Messiah had come and yet they weren't released. Listen, a lot of people worship a Jesus, small j. It is an idol. It is not the real king of glory and they fall into the same trap as the jewish nation did here in this passage read with me chapter 21 verse 1 says this now when they drew near to jerusalem and came to bethphage 
to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is not your typical king. What did a typical king ride? The tallest horse in the country. Give me the beautiful one that I may be head and shoulders above everyone else, that they may see me coming. What does Jesus choose to do? He rides in humble and meek on a foal, never ridden before by anyone else. He comes in humble and meek. And many in the Jewish society could not deal with that idea. That was not the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for the king. They were looking for David, the warrior. They would have taken Solomon, the brilliant, wise one. What they got was a savior and a Messiah for their own sinful selves. Jesus come to them and to a group of people that thought Rome was their worst enemy. Jesus come to them and said, Rome is not your worst enemy. Your worst enemy resides in you. When he says, if you've looked on a woman and lusted after her, you've committed adultery. If you've looked at someone and you've hated them, you've murdered them. What he is showing them is your religious check marks are not going to earn your way to God. The problem is deeper and more sinful than that. That kind of Savior was going to lift Passion Week a certain kind of way. Another kind of Savior would have come in, rode in, and overthrew the enemy. Jesus does the same thing, but it's not the enemy they thought they needed. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 11. Matthew is pointing the the Jewish nation, pointing Israel to their king. Verses 1 through 3. Faith is not understanding Jesus' commands. It's obedience without total illumination. I hope that sentence makes sense. Sometimes the Lord tells us to do things that don't make sense. Faith is not total illumination of seeing the whole plan and the whole problem play out. Faith is not knowing where the last step is and knowing you're going to get there. Faith is obedience to things you don't understand without total illumination. All you and I need to know is who is speaking to me? Are they good? Are they wise? The disciples are standing there and Jesus looks at them and says, hey, go into the next town. You're going to find this, you're going to find that. Bring them to me. If anybody stops you, just tell them the Lord needs them. Are we stealing two animals? I guess we are. Right? Let's go. I hope we can tell them we're sorry as we walk out with their stuff. Right? Like, they don't understand what is getting ready to happen. We see all throughout the Gospels, the disciples are not picking up the pieces of the Old Testament that Jesus is fulfilling until after he does it. And most of the time, he has to explain it to them. 
And even, uh, even those that were closest to him, that's the, that's the amazing story in the resurrection uh, when they're walking on the road and the two disciples don't recognize Jesus. What does he explain to them? He goes back to Moses and the law and he says, here is the Christ. Did this not have to happen? Did he not have to die? He illuminates all of these glorious pieces for them. And then they say, wow, this is Jesus. Were our hearts not on fire for what was going on? They're not understanding all the pieces of the Old Testament that Jesus is fulfilling until after. This is a pretty big one. Zechariah 9 9 says, Look, daughter of uh, Zion, look, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king coming. It's funny when you talk about the idea that Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine. And you say, Well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, raise the dead. Like, that one's a little more splashy, right? Like, turning water into wine's pretty cool, but. Like you do a lot of other stuff. You feed like 10,000 people with, you know, five crackers and two fish. Like a can of sardines, a couple crackers, like everybody's good. Like this is unbelievable. Best meal ever. No. Say, so why is that? Because the Old Testament says when Messiah comes, the hills will flow with sweet wine. And so Jesus, as his first miracle, signifies the coming of the Messiah, not only by turning water into wine, but what does the, what does the lead of the party say? You saved the best wine for last. This is glorious. When people say that Jesus never claimed to be God, when, when people say Jesus never claimed to be Messiah, they're showing their ignorance of the, of the Jewish culture because he does it all the time. This one is another one. Zechariah 9, 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Faith is not understanding everything Jesus has to tell you. Faith is trusting that he has your best interest at heart and that he knows what's going on. Faith would also be trusting in the idea that you have access to him to even ask. That's also faith. Verses 4 to 5, personal experience was only one avenue of Jesus' proclamation of kingship. Another was fulfilled scripture. Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus is going through uh, his life, he is doing certain things, certain things he had no control over, where he was born. That's a fulfilled prophecy. How he came about, right? Seed of woman, fulfilled prophecy. Other pieces, he's looking at the Jewish culture and saying, I am him. And he does that on repeat. So for those that are experiencing Christ, for the leper that he heals, for the Gentile that has no idea what Scripture means, Jesus comes along and interacts with them in a way that they say, wow, that has to be God. For the Jewish crowd, though, Jesus comes along and he interacts with them in that way. They see these things in the crowd. But he's also pointing to their most holy of scriptures and saying, I am that one, I am that one, I am that one. Fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. One of the most amazing things about uh, learning Old Testament things is to see Jesus there too. When Old Testament prophets are writing about Christ's life, Isaiah 53 is repeated constantly. It will be repeated this week on almost everything you turn on about what he's going to suffer on Passover, on, on, on Good Friday. It's going to be repeated constantly. When you figure out that that was written like 600 years before he was born, and there's a scrolled copy that dates to 300 years before he was born, when you figure out, when that is illuminated to you, it, you can't fake that. You can't fake it. When you read through the Psalms and you see Jesus there and Jesus there and Jesus there, you can't fake that. They were written by David 900 years before Messiah came. 
So the Jewish crowd is getting a different picture than the crowd of Gentiles that are seeing him and saying, heal my son, heal my daughter. And he says, done. And they say, wow, that's amazing. Later on, when the Roman soldier looks up and says, surely this was the son of God, he has no idea about fulfilled scripture. What he's seeing is the the sky be dark and the earth shake. And this innocent man who sits there like a lamb led to the slaughter opens not his mouth. He's watching him pray off the cross. He's watching God answer those prayers in certain ways. He's watching the, the sky get dark and all of this stuff happen. And he finishes with, surely this was the son of God. He's not getting that because he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, but the Jewish people are and should be. Verses 6 to 8, personal obedience plus personal sacrifice will lead to large crowds or a multiplication of the worship. If you and I will obey what God has told us, if we will sacrifice at times the things that we have, the things we think we need, if we will sacrifice our time, if we will love those with what we have to offer, the Lord will multiply your efforts. The disciples are obeying. The disciples are going about life with him, and other large crowds are seeing and enjoying. Verse 9, those that went ahead, what are they singing? Hosanna. Hosanna. The idea of Hosanna, it's like a transliteration of Uh, please save us, or save us, please. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? What What is he bringing with him? Salvation. Salvation. Psalms is where they pull this one from. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are looking, and the ones that walk before are praying for it. This is the way I see this passage. The ones that walk before, just like you and I, that first time of salvation, that first time of crying out to God saying, please save me. I have made a mess. I deserve hell. I deserve uh, the rest of my life being a, a disaster because I chose that road. I have done those things. And you look up and you say, please save me. Hosanna. And then the ones that follow, I see it like this. It's the praise of having been saved. There are some that go before, and I see that picture of just people crying out for God. They're going to do it today. They're going to pray the same prayer today. They're going to pray it until the Lord is done making his church. They're going to cry out, please save us. Hosanna. And then you and I today, if we're doing it right, if we're living this life, we're going to thank God for the same thing. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. Why? He has saved us. He has fulfilled his promise. It's a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer of praise, a song of praise. Knowing Jesus leads to praising him. For years, we talked about the idea of of witnessing and we talked about programs and sharing your faith and being comfortable in that. Listen, friends, the bottom line is simply this. If you and I know him, it will lead to sharing him. And you know what that's going to lead to? An uproar. It's going to lead to a mess. There are going to be some people that clamor for what you have to offer. They're going to follow. They're going to want to know more. And there are going to be some people that hate it. Adversarial with you because of it. You say, well, that's really not fair. Well, that's what Jesus had to live through too. It's what's going on in the passage. There's this group that they're laying their cloaks on the donkey. They're laying their cloaks on the ground. And he is walking across them like a king. Triumphant. Walking into the city. And then there's the other crowd saying, what in the world is going on here? 
I love the, the passage in John. They even go so far as to say, listen, you all have made a mess. Look at what you've done. Now you can't stop him. It's awesome. It is so cool. Go with me to Mark. I'm going to read real fast here. Mark, Peter tells the story. Verses 1 through 6, on Jesus' mission, we'll be interacting with many. Some know and love him, others do not. If you read the triumphal, uh, triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11, what you see is there's more interaction with the people that they're taking the donkey and the colt from. You're going to see that in that passage. To me, the idea is simply this. If you and I are on his mission, we're going to interact with people, and they're going to see us do crazy things, and you're going to have to have some kind of explanation for it. Like, there's nothing wrong sometimes with being like, man, this is just what the Lord has to say. This is what I feel like God is calling me to do. How many of you have been close to someone that made a decision and you were like, that doesn't make any sense? And it played out. It was the right decision. You say, well, what happened? Well, the, the Lord was really speaking to them. God was really directing them to do that thing, to give up that job, to marry that person, to go on that mission field. And everybody around them was like, that doesn't make any sense. And they had to interact with those people and have those conversations. Can't believe the Lord is asking you to do this. Yeah, that's what he's, that's what he's telling me. Sometimes it will be just what the Word of God has to say. You're going to live generous like that? You're not going to hoard stuff for yourself? You're going to love those people in your church like you love your own family? You're going to sacrifice your time and your talent uh, uh, for something going on there or somebody that needs what you have to offer. You're going to do those things. That doesn't make any sense. If you have enough interaction with the world, these things will come about. You will have these conversations. Our goal is just to be faithful and watch his promises come true. When the disciples are there and they're on the mission and the will of God, their goal isn't to convince them to, to give the animals. That's already been done. God has already said it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. Their goal is just to be faithful in the opposition, to be able to explain what is going on so that they can finish what the Lord has told them to do. You and I are not required to clear the way. You and I are re required to be faithful with what you've been given right now today. Your family, your job, your time, whatever it is God has given you today, our job is to be faithful, not to worry about the outcome and not to worry about what other people have to say about the decisions we're making. That's what's going on here. But you're going to have to have those interactions. The Bible says to be ready to give an answer to anyone. It's in 1 Peter. To anyone that asks you of the hope that you have, be ready to give an answer. The disciples are looking and saying, man, um, the Lord needs these things, and he told us you would be cool, and he said he would bring them back. Okay. Go ahead. That's what happens. Verse 7, that the colt was unused would make it naturally unwilling to receive a rider. Its submission would further demonstrate Jesus' authority over creation. I could not come up with that thought and write it out without stealing Tony Evans' thought. So I just put him on there. That's his, and it's really cool because it's in his study Bible. You say, well, what's going on? Well, that, that colt has never been ridden, right? And there's, wow, i got to be really careful. There's certain derogatory things that come about from a donkey, right, that we call people because they're, the way they operate is like that of that animal, right? Brett's looking at me like I'm, I'm confused. He's trying to get me to go further. I'm trying, you're trying to bait me, Brett Barker, and it will not work. There are certain behaviors of stubborn animals that leads us to call other people that, Right? The idea that this stubborn animal is going to yield 
gives more authority to the idea that the first writer is the king of glory. Man, listen. You and I were a lot like that animal before we got saved. And Jesus, as the king of glory, broke that wild, bucking jerk. That stubborn, going-to-get-its-own-way person that you used to be, Jesus broke that, and he changed that. Small picture of salvation right there. Give me the hardest, most stubborn animal, and it's going to do what the Lord of glory has in store for it. The idea that it would be written in a calm manner gives more sturdiness to the idea of who Jesus is. Friends, some of you have a salvation story like that, and your family could tell it over and over and over. You were that stubborn. You were that frustrating. And, man, the Lord grabbed you and changed you, and you have been a different person. He has made you like Jesus. That is a glorious testimony. Do not be scared to tell it because there are people that need that kind of hope right now. Why? Because they're married to or they have had children that are like that. And they need that hope too. In Matthew, Zechariah is the focus, Zechariah 9.9. In Mark, the kingdom of David in Psalm 118.26. That is the idea that comes out in this passage. Turn one more time with me. John chapter 22. John chapter 22 and we are done. The crowd is going to react. The crowd is going to react to all that Jesus has done. The crowd is going to react to the testimony that Jesus has built. I'll tell you what they're reacting to, too. If you, re- or if you read backward a little bit, what they're really reacting to is the idea that there was a man that was dead that's now no longer dead. Lazarus. I'm sorry, John chapter 12. I'm cross-eyed. Are we good? There's no John 22. What are you doing? It ain't even on my slide, is it? No. There we go. Stephen with the bailout. Thank you, sir. The crowd reacts. What are they reacting to? They're reacting to a Lazarus that was dead. And he was dead four days. And when Jesus got there, they were like, don't do it. He stinketh, Lord. Like, let's not open, right, the tomb. Right? Lazarus has been dead four days. That's going to have an odor. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. The crowd is reacting to that. If you look up a little bit in the passage right before, it says the plot to kill Lazarus. They not only wanted to kill Jesus, the leaders, but they wanted to kill Lazarus as well. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that he had done uh, what had done to him. The crowd that had been with him uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Verse 19, this is what I love. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You've gained nothing. You've not executed the plan. He's still alive. Lazarus is still alive. You all are a mess, and now the whole world's going after him. I love it. They are wrung out. 
Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The triumphal entry of Jesus. The king has come. Jesus' testimony has preceded him. The crowd is responding to the reputation of a glory of the glory of Jesus Christ. Verses 14 and 15. Jesus' will is to honor his father and to fulfill the promises of God. What is Jesus doing on this earth? He is doing the will of his father, which he tells us outright. And then he is also doing, fulfilling scripture so that people that are paying attention can see the signs and know what's going on. Another holiday we have shows that same perspective. It's the wise men in the the nativity story. They're looking for the signs. They see them. They go. They get to worship Jesus as a toddler. Godly understanding isn't always uh, immediate. Even the disciples had to play catch up. Friends, you don't have to understand everything. Sometimes you're going to play catch up, and that is just fine. The Lord is moving. When he moves you, you go. If you don't know all the reasons, it is okay. I promise you he'll catch you up when it's time. Verses 17 and 18, if you and I experience the work of God, we'll tell people about it. And if we experience the work of God, those that don't want to hear about it will see it and they will tell others too. They will hate you because they hated him. So here is Palm Sunday. Will will you and I make a way for him? As they come this morning to play, just a couple questions I want to ask you, right? What's our response to King Jesus? Do we know him? Do you even know him? If you don't know the Lord, today is the day. You're not guaranteed five more minutes. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, your sin debt is yours. It will have to be paid. It's paid now incrementally by all the consequences to bad decisions and horrible behavior. It's paid ultimately in front of God when you and I or or anyone else that doesn't know him is cast out of his presence. Because the penalty for sin is death, eternal death. Do you know him? Have we heard and explored his story? Do you even care to know him? If I told you this was the most important thing you would ever do with your life, would you care enough to explore it for five minutes? Can you think about some of his claims? Can you try to figure out why the whole world is, the whole calendar is based off of when he was born? Like that's an amazing thing to think about. Like we date our calendars because of this poor individual, this itinerant preacher Something bigger must be going on there. The church has never been stopped, even in places where it is hated. Communist China, the Middle East, it has never been stopped. It starts in Roman-occupied Jerusalem, the one place in the world it should not start. It goes against both of those superpowers. The church of Jesus Christ. Rome said you can worship him too, but you got to worship all the other ones. And the Jews said he is not God, you cannot worship him. There is only one. And yet the church starts right there. Do you care enough to even explore the story? Will we obey the commands of Christ? How about in a hostile world? Are we going to obey the uh, the commands of Christ? When he looks at the disciples and said, go into the city, get what I need and bring it back. He does it later at the Last Supper. Hey, go into the city. You're going to see this house. This guy owns it. He's got a nice big room. We're going to use it. Tell him I need it. Okay. And they go and they do it. In a hostile world, are you and I going to be able to obey what Jesus has to say? Will you search the scriptures to find them? Will you dig around a little bit and see these prophecies that he has fulfilled? It will increase your faith. Look at Psalm 22 sometimes. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Read them in sequence. The hill of Calvary, death in the tomb, the hill of glory. 
Watch it play out in those three psalms. Will our stories bring others to him? Will we lay uh, work to honor his next step? Listen to me. When they're laying their coats down on the donkey, do you not think that that's going to create something later that they have to deal with? Like, this is, what I, this is my protection. This is what I'm using for warmth. This is what I'm using to keep the sun off me. I'm going to lay it over this beast of burden so that my king can walk on it. It's going to smell like a beast of burden. That's cool. I'm going to lay it on the ground. These things that I deem so important, I'm going to lay them down. And he is going to walk across them. Are you and I willing to sacrifice a little bit? Are we willing to be mocked or made fun of even now? Are you and I willing to lay down the things that are of utmost importance to us so that the Lord may use them as he sees fit? And will you and I pray for that salvation and then will we praise that salvation? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Stand with me this morning. Pray that for the first time. Lord, save me. Or praise him with it because it's already been done. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. I